Welcome to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Braco Diagnostics. everyone and welcome to the first MRI cast of 2022. This is exciting. I really hope that 2022 is not 2022. Uh, Maybe we'll get through this year a little better. With me today from the land of the Badgers Uh, is Dr. Howard Raleigh. Bill, did you say 2022 like three times? No, 2022. Also. Also. As in also. Okay, never mind. Keep going then. Okay. I got come. Okay, well then. Okay, well, I was just introducing Howard here, but I'm going to do him again. We'll just keep rolling here. Hello, Howard. <laughs> Good morning, Bill. It's great to be uh, be here where uh, it, I'm inside, but outside it's seven below zero with a 30 degree uh, below zero wind chill here in Madison. But I'm I'm happy to be here on the podcast where it's nice and warm. It's warm, warm and cozy. And from the Atlanta suburbs. The, bur- the suburbanite, Kristen Harrington. Hello. Good morning, Kristen. Hey, um, you know what? I thought it was cold. It's about 40 here above freezing um, here in Roswell, Georgia. So um, now I should feel bad. Right, Howard? You should feel bad. <laughs> Just in general. I think in I'll general. survive. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I'm yep. feeling great. Yeah, well, good. Well, as mentioned in the intro, this MRI cast is sponsored by the way of an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics, and we certainly appreciate that support. T- today's topic is gadolinium-based contrast agents, dose and effectiveness. We're going to be looking at implications in clinical practice, and I think those of you listening are going to find this very interesting and eye-opening because we've actually been doing a little research and work and looking at this, and there's a lot about dose and effectiveness that I just don't think people are aware of or or have even have even talked about it. And and I want to mention before we get started that this MRI cast, like many of our other past episodes, will be available for CE credit on the MRICast.com website. So if you haven't taken advantage of those uh, CE credits, there's no cost to it, uh, check that out at MRICast.com. So let's get started, and we're going to start, I guess, talking, I don't know, Kristen, what would you like to you know, I'm, I will get it started. You know, this is this is interesting because I'm actually um, creating a presentation on literally MRI, the history of from then until now. And it's a nice refresher to go back and talk about um, Sir Peter Mansfield. And then actually part of it really dawned on me, you know, I've got to put a gadolinium portion into this talk because it's changed so much over time. And so I was kind of curious, I know, Bill, that you've done some stuff recently where you've kind of researched, you know, where the dosing kind of originated from. So why don't, why don't you speak to that and tell us a little bit about that? Well, I was looking, I was preparing a presentation for a neuroradiology meeting and uh, looking, at, looking at dose. 
and I knew I had seen this somewhere in the past, so I had to go digging in my bookshelves in here. And I found this clinical MRI, it's the title of it, by Dr. Val Runge. It came from, uh, I think it's copyrighted down in the uh, early 2000s. Uh, actually, I remember when he, when he gave me this book, so I got this signed copy here. Um, but in this book, and it talks about, uh, you know, history from a gadolinium-based contrast agent standpoint, and Dr. Runge was one of, if not the first, one of the first to uh, publish some stuff on the use of gadolinium-based contrast agents uh, going back to the late 1980s. And in this book, it refers to... Uh, it states, and I'm quoting from the book, in 1987, the first experience with a gadolinium chelate, and it was a particularly uh, Magnavist or gadolinium DTPA, uh, on intracranial tumors was published. Okay. Um, and this study, now everybody hold, hold on to your seats here, this consisted of 11 patients, and they evaluated doses of from 0.05 to 0.2 millimole per kilogram in 11 patients. And they also noted that a dose of 0.2 millimole per kilogram increased diagnostic yield in certain cases. Now, then there was a follow-up report to that in 1990, and that's the one that I've got uh, the abstract here that I've, I found. And this one, embrace yourself, this was a large study. This was 33 patients, and they allocated them into three groups. Group one got a dose of 0.025, so that would be quarter dose for what we know today. Group two got a dose of 0.05, which would be half dose of what, again, what we use today. <clears throat> Excuse me, and group three a dose of 0.1 millimole per kilogram body weight. And so after they did that, <laughs> diagnostically useful tumor delineation, and this is a point I really want to, uh, Howard to, to speak to at some point in time, diagnostically useful tumor delineation was obtained in two out of 11 patients in group one. So only two out of 11 did they get diagnostic information out of it. And the second group, uh, which was 0.05 millimole per kilogram, they got diagnostically useful information in seven out of 11. And in group three, which is 0.1 millimole, they got useful information in 10 out of 11. They also noted that a further increase in the dose to 0.2 in group three resulted in further increase in tumor brain contrast and improved tumor delineation. And then their conclusion is, as a result of these findings, <laughs> 33 people, um, a dose of 0.1 millimole per kilogram is recommended for routine investigation. Now, if you wonder why not use higher or what, why it didn't start out as higher and stuff, I, again, these were very small studies, but in 1988, so in between this 97 study, that I mentioned from the book, and then this 1990 study. In 1988, there was a pharmacologic study in healthy volunteers. Um, and I'm looking at the thing here to see if I can tell how many uh, they did here. But basically, they took some healthy volunteers. I'm looking for the exact number, but split them up, and they gave uh, they gave some of them. Uh, 
0.1 millimole per kilogram. And then they gave the others 0.25 millimole per kilogram. They didn't have tumors. What they did was they injected them and then they did blood work and they looked at serum iron and serum bilirubin. And they found that if in the group that got 0.25 millimole per kilogram, they got increases in serum iron and serum bilirubin. Uh, the ones that got 0.1 had less frequent and less marked increases than the dose of 0.25. And so basically with these studies, you have people, you know, recommending we just go with 0.1 millimole per kilogram, you know, as, as if that's the, the optimal dose. And I, I remember uh, when I was uh, talking with Val Rungi, Dr. Val Rungi, one time, I said, so let me see if I get this right of how the dose came about. Basically, they, you know, gave these people, you know, two different doses and they found that to the higher dose, you got an increase in iron and serum iron and serum bilirubin. At the lower dose, you really didn't. So they're talking about it and they go, well, it looks like 0.1 is going to be the good dose. What does everybody think? Everybody thinks, yeah, 0.1 sounds good. Let's go to the bar. And that's that's basically what they did. Uh, he said, yep, that's basically it. And that's where we are today. We're at 0.1 millimole for standard dose. And to pitch it back to Howard here for a second, because it's been well demonstrated, and there's actually scientific data that shows this, that if you increase the dose, and Howard, you can correct me here and tell us more about this, going up to like triple dose, that in, especially for metastatic disease, and this is what a lot of this was focused on early on is metastatic disease, especially for that, higher dose is better. If you give more, you see more. I'm sorry, Bill. Were you talking to us? <laughs> wow. Yeah, that was like a dissertation or something. No, um, Bill, I did want to let you know that um, I was kind of looking at the information you were talking about, and it was 12 healthy mills for the serum oh. iron and serum bilirubin. Okay. So, so it's probably so not as bad as it sounds like, because, you know, there were years and years of preclinical studies in rodents and stuff so that they, they kind of had a pretty good idea where they were headed. And then um, these are very small numbers, as you point out, and they're for one thing, brain tumors, and they probably weren't metastatic tumors, although I don't know that for sure. Um, and so, you know, it, it's a complicated thing. And you know, I, I am a little bit surprised that, uh, you know, the FDA would have approved a specific dose, you know, or recommended it on label, um, you know, ba based on such a small number. But, you know, it turns out it's pretty good. As you point out, there are situations where you want to give a higher dose, uh, or at least you want to see more, you want to be sure uh, you're taking out uh, or radio surgerizing, if you will, everything <laughs> that's there. Um, and so, uh, Traditionally, back in the 90s, when we did radiotherapy planning, we would give a triple dose. Um, that, of course, was in the days when we thought gadolinium was holy water, as I've heard you say, Bill, <laughs> and didn't have any concerns about high-dose gadolinium protocols. Um, with the reality of things like NSF creeping in with some of those earlier agents, uh, it, things have been dialed back and 
0.1 millimole per kilo has been, you know, pretty good for most applications, maybe not optimal uh, for some. And, you know, it comes back to, you know, with all these dose ranging things and more importantly, the crossover trials, uh, you know, you get a scan. I'm a radiologist. I sit down, I read it, I see contrast. I'm happy with it. What the problem is, you don't know what you're not seeing. So if you had a higher dose, maybe you would see three more metastases and that might change things considerably. Or one of the metastases might be in the hippocampus. So now we can't use a uh, hippocampal sparing radiotherapy protocol. So it's a really complicated issue. And, you know, you try to try to balance things as best you can. But 0.1 millimole per kilo has turned out to be pretty good guess, I guess you'd say. Yeah, well, you know, and and in many cases, you'd rather be rather be lucky than good. But uh, but you also you know, have just... some agents that are FDA approved for higher dosing as well, so that makes a difference. And then I understand exactly what you're saying. You know, different agents. What you're saying, Howard, is it can complete what you see can completely change the treatment path for these patients. Absolutely. And, you know, that's why, at least in our practice uh, with the available agents, we've chosen to use a high relaxivity agent, uh, specifically Multihance, as our main agent in practice, because we know that we're going to see more lesions, even with a single dose of 0.1 millimole per kilo compared to um, compared to all, all the all the other agents uh, based on crossover studies. Well, that's a really it's a really good point, and it's a good. I think it's a good time to to look at this, and that is that if you want to increase the effect of the gadolinium, I mean, just so, just you know, as a review, you know, we don't see the gadolinium; we see the effect of the gadolinium, and that effect is the T one and T two shortening, and we've focused in some past podcast on uh, using the T2 effects in perfusion and stuff. And we may speak to that a little bit here again, but just focusing on the T1 effects. If you increase the effectiveness of the agent, um, if you have to increase the, if you increase the effectiveness of the agent, I guess that's what I'm saying. You get the same effect as you do as if you were to increase the dose. So there's two ways to do this. Either increase the amount of GAD you put in there or increase the effectiveness of the gadolinium for a given dose. And that would be in relaxivity. Now, relaxivity is in some funky units. Howard, can you shed some light on that? <laughs> well, thanks for asking <laughs> me that. I certainly can't. Question <laughs> but you're right. It, it basically gives you a number that tells you how effectively uh, you relax the proton uh, relaxation time. In other words, by giving uh, a high relaxivity agent, you'll get that uh, T1 curve to relax back faster so that if you image at the same time, you know, say it's 500 milliseconds for a T1, um, you're going to get a higher signal because it's, it's relaxing back toward its equilibrium. They're all going to get back there eventually, but some agents make them relax sort of at a moderate rate and some at a faster rate. So a higher relaxivity measured by this little R1 um, uh, makes things move faster so you get more signal and that translates into seeing more detail and more lesions uh, for, for some situations. 
Well, then all agents have a, what's interesting, another interesting thing about relaxivity, all agents have a known relaxivity value. And then it's got some particularly funky units, uh, but uh, we, we'll just, we just go with numbers because the unit is kind of obscure, I guess. I've never really understood the unit. But uh, so, for example, uh, all the agents that we were using before Multihance uh, had relaxivities roughly in the, what would you say, Howard, four to five range, somewhere around in there? Yep. Most of them were right around four-ish. Right around four-ish, something like that, again, with these little funky, funky units. Um, and so when we first started using gadolinium and, you know, let's see, the first agent we had, of course, was um, Magnavist. And then I'm trying to think the what the second agent was in the U.S. So that, that would have been uh, OmniScan, wouldn't it, yep. Howard? Yep, OmniScan um, and Optimark came soon thereafter, I think. Yeah, yeah. And um, so with those agents, when they came out, you know, in competitive selling or what, relaxivity was never mentioned. If they did, we wouldn't know what the crap they were talking about. So we're all roughly the same. They were also all given at the same dose. So they basically all did the exact same thing to the exact same amount. Um, then, uh, you know, eventually we get, we get multi-hands, which has uh, a much higher relaxivity, essentially double what double what the others uh, are, and that's when we started noticing about you know the relaxivity. You know, the the thing about as I understand it, and again I'm asking if this is my understanding is correct. When you look at the effectiveness of the gadolinium, it's really kind of two two components. Um, number one, how big is the molecule, and then number two, how closely can it associate with a water molecule? Apparently, the bigger the molecule, the slower it tumbles, so the better its relaxivity. But the bigger the molecule, it can't get quite as snuggle up next to the water molecule as, as well. So it's a it's a delicate balance. Have I got that right, Howard? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And what what we're looking at is a, a really complex issue because the little R1 relaxivity uh, is measured in a test tube at the field strength maybe that you intend to use. And it actually changes according to field strength. So as you get to from 1.5 T where let's say your relaxivity is four, uh, if you go to three T, it might be lower actually. And if you go to half Tesla magnet, it might actually be higher. But there are also trade-offs that occur with your T1s getting longer at 3T and so forth. So ultimately, it comes down to the empiric performance of this agent in real patients rather than these measurements in test tubes, which are liter per millimole per second, I believe. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, Howard, yeah. uh, do you remember, maybe Bill, you remember, when 3Tesla first hit the market, they were saying that you could give a half dose and get the same results. Do you remember hearing that marketing information? Yeah, um, but you know what that comes down to is more complex. You do get better signal to noise at 3T, um, but I think even more important than that at any field strength is what pulse sequence or sequences you're capturing this information with. And, you know, in our practice, for example, when we give gadolinium, we typically uh, do a T2 flare first post-gadolinium to kill a little time, but also because it's really good for leptomeningeal enhancement. 
Then we uh, perform a, a gradient echo T1, like an MP Rage or a Bravo or something like that, depending on your vendor. And then finally, we do a T1 uh, spin echo, actually a cube sequence with that saturation. And it, that that does a couple of things. You get three different types of post-contrast uh, behavior. You get uh, very different uh, background uh, on those three images so that contrast enhancing lesions, for example, at least in my experience, they're much easier to see on the T1 cube, partly because we do it last. So the gadolinium is percolated around and partitioned into the lesions, even slow enhancing ones, but also just because of the uh, contrast to background that you get in that particular sequence. And I think in many ways that's more important actually than the field strength is how how you use it. And, um, you know, I remember when 3T first came out and one of our competitors got a magnet and it was a small community hospital and uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but they, they were, they were going to try to market this. And uh, one of our senior colleagues came in and saw what protocols they were doing, what pulse sequences, it was a real mess. And his comment was, it's like giving a pig a wristwatch. <laughs> you, know, so, you know you are uh, a pig farmer i don't think a lot of people know that's that true that's that's a true fact but you know kidding aside it's it's how you use it in practice with your patients and their individual indications but having kind of a bulletproof approach to the post-contrast imaging I think preferably with different types of uh, uh, families of sequences, T2 flare, gradient echo, and T1 spin echo, that that gives you three chances to find it. And in our case, we run those in different planes, so we get through different artifacts and so forth. And I think that's super important to keep in mind, no matter what contrast agent or what field strength you're working at. Can you break that down a little bit for technologists, those three different types of pulse sequences? I know you were talking about the lepto... Okay, you, I can't. Lepto you got that thing. That, yeah. that yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as far as the T2 flare, and I, I think that's fantastic. So many facilities do not utilize doing that post. Um, it's got benefits as far as the contrast, which are able to delineate, but... I really believe people push GAD so quickly and do the post scans that things are missed. Um, and so I think that's a huge problem. But then you talk about doing three different types of sequences. Are you able to elaborate a little bit more on what each grouping of the different types of pulse sequences really allows you to, uh, to visualize what you're looking for? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for that question, which is much better than most of Bill's questions. I just like <laughs> well, he doesn't let me talk. He doesn't let me talk much, Howard. So, does you know, he actually still work practically? <laughs> <laughs> you know. All right. No. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm killing sorry, me. Uh, killing. So killing me, small. <laughs> well, there there's several things that go into at least our approach, which I, I think works for us. Um, First of all, all three of those sequences, the T2 flare, the T1 gradient echo, and the T1 spin echo are done as a volumetric sequence. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, that's going to take forever. 
and they're going to move and it's going to be a mess. But if you use, you know, parallel imaging with multi-channel uh, coils and so forth, you can get all three of those done in about 11 minutes and they're very high quality. That means several things. One is that, you know, it's scan once recon mini, even after they're gone. If somebody wanted a special obliquity through the optic nerves or whatever, you can do it. Um, and so we scan in one plane and we, uh, make orthogonal recons by threes in the other two planes. Uh, the next thing it gives you is every single brain that you inject has a treatment uh, planning and navigation scan. So whether it's surgery or radiation therapy, you're not bringing them back just to get that brain lab or stealth scan because you've got it. It typically uh, centered on the gradient echo T1, but you can use any of those in these uh, these treatment planning machines. The third thing is the order of the acquisition of those three post contrast scans is important. Um, as you mentioned, you know, I think everybody does a T2 flare for their brains. I mean, almost all sites at some point you use that. Most people do it pre-contrast, um, but we moved it into the first post-contrast position there's really no downside. You'll get everything you know and love about T2 flare, uh, including detection of subarachnoid hemorrhage and meningitis and stuff like that. But by giving it, uh, put, moving it to the post-contrast position, a couple of very important things happen. One is you kill three or four minutes while you're doing it. So this is a volumetric T2 flare, like a, a, a space or a cube, uh, something like that, or uh trying to remember what Phillips calls theirs, uh, Vista, I think. So one of those takes three to four minutes if you get it tuned up properly. And that in and of itself is an improvement in your post-gadolinium imaging because it's going to give more time uh, elapsed before you get to your killer T1s, which are going to follow. The other thing is that T2 flare actually has some really useful behavior for most bright lesions, bright on T2, it'll show you enhancement shine through. There's not supposed to be much T1 enhancement, but even disadvantaged in that early position, T2 flare will often show you more lesions or different lesions. For instance, meningitis in the leptomeninges, the delicate meninges, or show you uh, dural enhancement, the packy meninges, the thick meninges. So it, it gives you a different look um, at, at those structures. So that the other, go ahead. The other thing, mm -hmm. I was going to say the other thing I heard you, cause you were well, before you get off this, this particular topic with it, and I've heard you speak to this before <clears throat> and I've seen some of these examples. So when you do the T2 flare post GAD, you see the gadolinium enhancing lesion, you can see the edema, but you also can see portions of tumors that do not enhance, correct? That's exactly right. So it, it becomes, at least for some lesions, like most brain tumors, sort of a one-stop shop. And so our surgeons will sometimes import the post-contrast T2 flare volume into their workstation. And that way in the operating room, they can they can target the enhancing portion using that plus the Bravo or MP-Rage. And they can also target the non-enhancing portion, which is critical. There are some tumors that don't enhance at all, like some of the uh, insular gliomas and so forth. So it gives them a more complete view rather than the MP-Rage or Bravo, which basically only shows the enhancing portion. I mean, there are some tumors where it doesn't work as well. Uh, if you have a competing T2 star effect, like a 
calcified or very gritty meningioma, you know, your T1 is what you want for that. It's an extraaxial tumor, same with, uh, I don't know, vestibular schwannoma or something like that. But the complementary nature is what I'm trying to emphasize here between the T2 flare and the the more commonly used uh, T1 gradient echo, which is, is still your standard of care, gold standard post GAD for most sites. Yeah. So let's. I know, let's I, go, I know you want back. to move on. And go ahead, Christian. If you topic, but I'm, I'm just, right, right. you know, I look at things from the tech standpoint. We're not sure what standpoint you look at things from, Bill, but I, we're still trying to figure I, that I, out. I, don't, I look at things from the standpoint of my office window as I look outside. <laughs> wow, you know, wow. You are funny today. Um, so, in those 11 minutes, a couple things. Uh, many facilities don't realize that they can automatically generate um, the other planes from these 3D acquisitions. So, I always like to throw that out there that certain vendors will automatically do those recons for you and you don't have to manually go to a multiplane or reformat package to do that. The other thing I'll ask you is um, in those 11 minutes um, with the two 3Ds that you're doing, um, are they um, isotropic? Um, They're not quite isotropic except for our T1 uh, gradient echoes, which we do intentionally, of course, uh, because those are the workhorse for radiotherapy and the neurosurgical ther- planning. For the, yeah, the planning. Okay, that's yep. that was my but question. And the companies don't like you to say this, but you can use things like slice zip and you know three quarter phase and all sorts of modifications that you would normally use to to reduce in scan time, and they're still importable and still accurate uh, for for planning. So, uh, and we do three uh, 3Ds, the T2 flare, the, the gradient echo T1, and the spin echo T1. They're all three 3Ds. And it's, it's important to point out, because <clears throat> I only know this because I've heard you do the you know, talk on this before. For those people listening, you don't do the T2 flare pre and post. That's This is only done post, not pre. That's right. And that'll be a little bit uh, of... Uh, an upset for, for your radiologists are used to looking at that. Wait a minute. How can I tell if there's subarachnoid hemorrhage or whatever? It's like you get everything you normally get, plus you get some enhancement on top of it. So, you know, when the leptomeninges, those, you know, the sulci and the pia and so forth uh, at the surface of the brain, where you're looking for subarachnoid blood and meningitis, you'll not only see it like you usually do with a non-con flare, you'll actually see it better and your differential diagnosis of possibilities remains the same. You'll just come up with it better because you'll see it faster. It's going to be blood, pus, or some other kind of cells. And you can relax and know that you're, you're picking it up with greater conspicuity in the post-GAD, uh, and you don't need pre and post. We do pre-contrast T1s because that's important. Uh, if you've got methemoglobin or fat or something, you want to know that that was intrinsically bright. Uh, and it's really enhancing because that's the definition of enhancement. It's the pre to post contrast signal. So that's that's a key point, and I'm glad you you brought that up. Oh, and Bill, before you take back over, just one more question. I will <laughs> shut okay. up at some point today. I promise you. Um, my husband wants me to run out of all my words today before he gets off work. Let's just say that. Um, you said something. You said some women actually have more words in a day. Did you guys know that? No. 
No. Now you do. Um, you said that you had different I'm placements. I'm not going to say anything more. We're, you're going to do the rest <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> you're trying to show my husband some mercy today, aren't you? Oh, my, my, my mind was just wandering there. I was thinking back to what Howard said when you said blood, pus, and cells. Oh, my. Oh, <laughs> exactly. God. That's true. I am stuck around the house these days. But you were also talking about your artifact placement. Um, so how do you determine for each sequence how you're going to place that artifact based upon this, you know, what you're running? Well, we just empirically set up a sagittal T2 flare cube, which is usually the most efficient, you know, because of the shape of the head. Um, and then we run an axial uh, Bravo or MP rage, and we run a coronal T1 cube. So if you've got, for instance, braces or, you know, metal in the, in the calvarium, or you've got phase artifacts ghosting across, at least that way you've got three chances to see each part of the brain. Uh, and of course, they each have a little bit different T2 star effect and a different phase disturbance effect. But uh, I just like the principle of doing them in three, three planes to, to, you know, just in case you need it have another look in another plane. Um, and they, they recon beautifully uh, in the orthogonal planes as well. Yeah, I just think that's important to uh, point out. But Bill, I'm going to let you go, go ahead. Let it go. Well, no, I was just, no, just going to also point out before we get off this topic, another interesting thing that the folks listening might have a curious question about. You know, we call it a T2 flare. And it's, it's, Really, CSF attenuation, not fluid attenuation, so it should be T2 sapphire. But anyway, we call it T2 flare because it has a long TR and a long TE. And then you wonder, well, how does this stuff show up? Uh, you know, how do you see enhancement on a T, quote T2 weighted image? Well, uh, someone I heard somebody discuss that one time, and it's just interesting thing to think about. You have an inversion recovery sequence, so you start with a 180, so you intrinsically have T1 contrast in this pulse sequence. So you've got both T1 and T2 effects in that. And I think that's another reason why it makes it a great, <clears throat> almost a one-stop shop, as, as Howard would say. You know, I think that's an important thing about it. Well, and just one more thing to hammer home here is that, um, as you mentioned, you know, we're all in a hurry. We've got, got to get more patients done and send money up to the tasseled loafer land so they can build more buildings and stuff. <laughs> but um, if you're, uh, you're, you're already hooked up to the scanner and as I've heard you, Bill, say, you know, the door is slamming, you're already injecting and you're scanning. Um, you're on the first part of that curve, which for most lesions, you want to be more like five to 10 minutes out to catch the optimal contrast enhancement. That gives you lower background of gadolinium and it gives slow enhancing lesions like some MS patients uh, lesions or some tumors gives them more time to sort of partition a little more gadolinium across that broken blood brain barrier. So that's why with our approach T2 flare kills three, four minutes, then the Bravo is kind of in the early sweet spot and the T1 cube is in the late sweet spot. And it turns out that's really probably my go-to for, uh, you know, say radiosurgery planning for metastases, because that's where I'm going to see those tiny little lesions the best. You know, Bill, I should probably tell my story real quick um, about um, what happened as far as the tumor. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So this is a, a really good reason, um, kind of drives it home a little bit 
about waiting um, those crucial, it's, you know, three to five minutes, you can see the signal intensity change greatly as far as the contrast, as uh, Howard says, percolates. Um, on Christmas, uh, no, it was on Thanksgiving Day, I got a call from the um, girl that actually lived with us and helped us take care of our children. And she was from Columbia and her dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And so I got the images. I sent them to Bill Howard. I may have sent them to you. I, I sent them to quite a few people just to look at. And then I took them into the facility where I'm PRN and, um, you know, they just said they only ran one sequence post, just one T1 post. And, you know, they said it was just a, a really low grade, not that big of a deal tumor. You know, it was, you know, not that much. It turned out that it was a really high grade um, oligodendroglioma. I can't believe I just got that word out, but I could not say leptomeningeal. Um but yeah, it ended up being a pretty aggressive, you know, tumor situation that he had. I think that's what he was diagnosed with after the biopsy. And his outcome was, you know, it was it was fatal, definitely, and at a much faster course because they did not do at least even more than one T1 weighted um, sequence. So it's really important to to add that in. I know at our facility that it says if giving contrast always do the flare post contrast as you know the first sequence and so that's standard protocol if we give gadolinium so i think everyone should definitely take a look at that for a number of reasons there are just a couple of uh situations where you would do something before the t2 flare at least in our practice one would be obvious uh maybe a dynamic pituitary where you're going to probably get a bunch of T1s in the coronal plane, probably, uh, as you inject the contrast. Another would be any dynamically, uh, any other dynamically injected protocol, for example, perfusion for a brain tumor, that's going to be your first one. It only takes a minute or so, or maybe uh, you've got a time-resolved MRA. That can actually, either perfusion or MRA can also go after contrast because they're inherently subtracted. Uh, but those are situations where you might not do the T2 flare first. But every other uh, exam, at least in neuro uh, land, probably gets a T2 flare first. All right, I want to I want to go back to just a second to to dose and and relaxivity, um, and make sure everybody understands that from a from a dosing history standpoint, when Prohance was introduced on the market. Um, well, let me, let me even back up before that. Um, when OmniScan was introduced on the market, OmniScan had, or Howard, let me ask you this. When OmniScan was introduced, did OmniScan have labeled indications for up to 0.3 millimole per kilogram, or was that later? I think that was later. And I do remember some of the early stuff where, we had stickers to put in the chart if somebody got on the scan because it yeah. transmetallated with calcium and interfered with colorimetric uh, determinations of calcium. Which yeah, that was it was interesting. I was, I was actually had a real job then, and, and that's why we'll speak to that in just a second. So when when Prohance was on the market, it had labeled indications for up to 0.3 millimole per kilogram. And the way by labeling it was to work, you would do 0.1 millimole and then give them an additional 0.2 millimole. 
which would take you up to a total of 0.3. And in this book that um, that Dr. Rangi had published at that time, then both ProHans and OmniScan had labeled indications for up to 0.3 moles per kilogram. Uh, OmniScan obviously does not now. Um, when, you know, this was pre-NSF, and then, of course, once we hit NSF and, you know, OmniScan was one of his group, one of the group one, actually the only group one agent still in the market today <clears throat> with a large number of cases of NSF, then that high dose thing just kind of disappeared. And so the whole thing about giving it higher dose just kind of, to your point, I believe you said earlier with the um, what we found out about NSF, regardless of the, of the agent, we just kind of backed off on that uh, higher dose, but Currently, Prohance is still is is the only agent. It's, it's a Group Two agent that has labeled indications for zero point three millimole per kilogram. So, Howard, are there certain disease processes where higher dose would, in fact, be useful? Yes, I do think so. I mean, you're giving it to see relaxivity effects, and so. Um, I think the best example would be metastatic disease, especially if it changes the staging of the patient or changes the approach to either surgery. Is it a single met or are there actually six? And you wouldn't know until you gave a higher dose. Um, and, you know, I think keeping things consistent across time so that, you know, during follow-up, you you have a high quality exam to compare to the last one is important. But We've chosen, you know, the other approach, which is to use the high relaxivity agent, multi-hance, which is like giving a double dose of any of the other traditional agents uh, based on crossover study data, at least. So we feel pretty comfortable, uh, right or wrong, uh, using a full dose of multi-hance for our brain tumor and metastases patients because we know compared to the rest of the world using other agents, that we're getting a double dose type of look at those lesions and uh, lesion detection. Yeah, that's a great point. That's, that's one of, let me say this before I forget, Chris, and I'll let you jump in there. The um, So for those, just so, again, listeners, so you know, the the data in the in the studies shows that, in general, when you compare the essentially doubled relaxivity of multi-hands compared to the standard relaxivity agents, that doubling the relaxivity produced about a 30% increase in uh, contrast to noise. And 30% increase in contrast to noise is what was seen in double-dose studies. Is that still correct, Howard? That's right. And so we mentioned earlier that the typical relaxivity for typical agent is around four or five uh, depending on how you measure it, multi-hance is around six or seven. Uh, around six, if you use bovine uh, plasma. And in Wisconsin, we like to promote that sort of thing. <laughs> or if you like humans, or maybe you're studying more humans than cows, um, it's probably uh, closer to seven or so. Um, and that does remind me of a story. Um, it, uh, years ago, America's Dairyland on our license plate was was felt to be fuddy-duddy and there was a a survey to see if there was a better thing and people looked at other states license plates and the one that came in first was instead of America's Dairyland eat cheese or die you know <laughs> <laughs> so 
sort of like freedom or you know like, i think it's new hampshire or somebody out there has that on their plate but i i digress obviously there were there were people that will argue eat cheese and die right <laughs> no 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 cheese no. is good for you there's you know no I, okay so we'll start doing Kristen confessions on these podcasts and so i will let you know i kind of grew up in the city and i did not know what bovine plasma was Oh, my. I've never asked another person that did not know the answer to that question. Yeah. How about porcine? Do you know what that means? Uh, no, I didn't know a rooster was a male. Okay. That's the other question. I was going to save that for the next one. I mean, I'm, I'm now a farm person because of my daughter and, you know, she rides horses. So I'm learning and I probably could teach you a few things, Howard. Just give me. I would guess, but. Uh, Bill, I think we have to get back on topic here. Okay. I, but right. I have a question. I, I want to talk about um, the. I want to talk about dose versus volume. And um, you know, again, I think Howard, we're working you like crazy here. But um, have you seen any? Um, the radiologist. He's not going to be doing anything else much. Today, oh, that's so. true. That's true. <laughs> um, I, I was going to comment on that. We have to stay on topic here. Um, have you ever? You know. I know that initially there was no scientific data to indicate that giving a lower volume at the same dose had any benefits. Um, and I don't know of any data that's been released since then. That was, gosh, I don't know, six, seven years ago that I saw that data. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, and I think this uh, gets at the question, or we you have to put this in the context of most of the agents being formulated at one molar and uh, uh, get half, molar. half molar, sorry, except for one, which is uh, gadobutrol, which, uh, uh, or gadavist is the trade name. That one's concentrated so that you give half the volume, but you give the same number of molecules of gadolinium. And so at least in theory, yeah, you know, a smaller volume, say one teaspoon versus two teaspoons might uh, give you uh, a tighter bolus, for example, for things like perfusion, um, or maybe in a highly sensitive infant, maybe you'd want to give less volume because of their cardiac status or something. I don't think that's really ever been proven to to be the case. Uh, you see some anecdotal reports of sharper peaks for perfusion and so forth, but you're not looking at the sharper peak. You're looking at the parameter map, which you're reading for blood volume flow and so forth. Uh, and so that's a, a theoretical advantage that, as far as I know, you know, is mainly for dynamic injections. By the time you inject and it, it goes around the system, by the time you're scanning, it's been around the body 30, 40, 50 times. Um, and it's it's doing its thing. And at that point, it's more the relaxivity that makes a difference rather than what was injected in terms of how much was in the syringe. So let's let's talk about relaxivity in, in a little more detail here. Um, <clears throat> if you look at the relaxivity of all the agents, uh, and again, you know, most of the agents are in that four to five range. Uh, Gadabutrol, Gadabist is approximately 17% higher. Now, uh, Multihance is, of course, even higher than that. And, and although not an extracellular fluid space agent, Eovist, also uh, the liver agent, has a higher relaxivity. It's a different formulation and a different dose, but it, but it has higher relaxivity. 
And the reason for that high relaxivity that you see with EOVIST and Multihance is because of an additional side chain that causes a transient interaction with protein. And this is where the size thing comes into play. So when the, the gadolinium, the you know, the water molecule's got a molecular weight of 18, gadolinium's got a molecular weight of 800 to 1,000. When you get that molecule and then you stick it up next to a protein, my understanding is that th these proteins have these little pockets that this gad likes to, you know, get up in there and hang out really close. Proteins are macromolecules with molecular weights in, I guess, millions. And so now you've got this really big, slow-tumbling magnetized unit. And that's what really causes the relaxivity to increase. And I've seen some really interesting studies where they measure the relaxivity in water. And multi-hance is pretty close to everything else. But when you put it in the physiologic range with, with serum albumin, then it binds with those proteins and you get this really, really big effect. So in this instance, the relaxivity is uh, increased by virtue of protein interaction. And Gadavis doesn't have any protein interaction. Maybe its molecule is slightly larger. I mean, I'm not sure why it's got 17% higher. But again, it's not clinically significant as opposed to, in this case, protein interaction, which really does make a clinical significance in what you see for a given dose. Yeah, I think the other way to say that is, you know, we have these measurements in test tubes and whether those are various types of stability constants or relaxivity, as we're talking about, uh, these give us some idea of what to expect in terms of their behavior. But ultimately, what matters is when you put it into a human being, does it change what you see on your image such that the diagnosis might be changed or they can be more confidently cleared of disease, for example? And so uh, the answer comes from these crossover studies, which have shown uh, convincingly that uh, multi-hands shows you in brain tumor patients at least more detail on the enhancing lesions than any of the agents, including gadobutrol, even though it, it does have an R1 of 4.7 or something like that. Um, it, it doesn't translate into anything other than acting like a standard agent from the relaxivity standpoint and from lesion detection standpoint. Well, does, you know, one, so that's one thing to way to look at relaxivity is increase the effectiveness for, you know, a standard dose, but are there, not everybody needs a standard dose, right? I mean, not everything you do needs a full 0 0.1 millimole per kilogram. And Howard, would you not say that if, as from a physician, from a prescribing physician standpoint, with the higher relaxivity of an agent, that gives you dosing flexibility then for you can tailor it to the patient for a variety of reasons, clinical, and maybe you just want to reduce the amount of GAD this person's getting. Certainly that's true. And especially in my practice, we typically give a full weight adjusted dose, 0.1 millimole per kilo in adults up to 20 mLs. And we can talk about that. I cap adults at 20. Um, but for children, for example, uh, where multi-hands is approved at 0.5 to 0.7 to 0.1, um, it's been shown to be quite effective uh, for enhancement. And, you know, it depends on the lesion. If you're following a meningioma, 
Uh, Bill, I've heard you say that if you walk into the room with a bottle, it starts to enhance. Yeah. That's probably true. I guess the problem with that is you never know what you might miss in follow-up. So maybe their meningioma is perfectly well seen. But, uh-oh, I missed their schwannoma that developed since last year because I only gave a half or quarter dose. So my practice has been to use the highest relaxivity agent and, you know, 0.1 millimole per kilo. There's a there's a paper, actually, that Kristen brought to my attention. Um, the lead author, uh, Dr. Dave Interlines, a good friend of ours. We've done some uh, plenty of meetings with him where he was looking at variable contrast dose in uh, brain and spine of neonates and infants and looking at between uh, 0.07 and 0.13, excuse me, millimole per kilogram. And, uh, you know, like you said, these are not necessarily small lesions and they, they do seem to, you know, be effective. And there's certainly the benefit of, you know, reducing the dose, the the ACR says in their uh, MR or not MR manual, but their uh, contrast media manual that uh, the lowest dose necessary uh, should be used. And uh, Howard, I've heard you mention something about low dose because people get you know, people get all about, well, reduce the dose, reduce the dose. And if you can do it, that's fine. But I think there's there's a little bit of a danger and you know, going too far. That's, that's my fear is that there's, there's a risk, a safety risk of missing lesions. If you arbitrarily reduce the dose thinking you're going to see everything you need to. And that's, that's why I still give a full dose, uh, in virtually all cases. Uh, the only time I don't inject a full dose is usually for a split dose protocol where, you know, I may be doing perfusion now and then uh, five minutes after the perfusion's done and a couple more images, I'm going to get a time resolve tricks. But I'll I'll always, you know, round round that off at the end to a full dose, uh, 0.1 millimole per kilo. And, you know, I think it's a well-intentioned thing by the ACR and it also helps helps me support my decision to, to give a, a, you know, 0.7 uh, seven tenths of the dose for perfusion and three tenths for the tricks, for example. Um, but it it's really a difficult thing to know, and you, we've learned that from these double blind crossover studies. You, you don't know what you don't see, so mm-hmm. even <laughs> yeah. though even though you see contrast enhancing lesion or lesions, you don't know what you missed if you gave either a standard agent with normal relaxivity around four. Or if you gave a reduced dose because you thought maybe today it would be okay. And you know what? You have to think about it like this. So I went to one facility and they were confusing um, agents with relaxivities. And so they were half dosing a standard agent. And I know Bill remembers me calling him and I was just, I was mortified. Um, And so... I, I think, and, and you know, I think it's important to think about doing that that standard dose, except for in the situations you're talking about, for example, with the perfusion, um, Howard. So, and also, you just helped me to justify that statement that's in the ACR contrast manual, because I've always thought, you know, oh, give as much as you need to and as little as possible. It's just like, why would you even put that in there? Because to me 
you never know what you're missing, like you said several times. But now I understand with you discussing, uh, there are reasons that you need justification to use that lower dose. I remember, I remember a paper I saw, <clears throat> or it was a slide actually. Uh, I've, I've got it somewhere. It's long since in my archives, <clears throat> but it showed when we were talking about double dose and back in that days, you know, showed an increasing with a standard agent and seeing more. But what was interesting, they had a they had a example of single dose. I think I got this from Dr. Valrungi. Single dose of uh, multihans. Double dose of multi-hands, same patient, and then a trip, then up to a triple dose, triple dose of multi-hands, and even though with multi-hands having higher relaxivity, there was a lesion on the triple dose multi-hands that you didn't see on the single dose multi-hands. So like, you don't know what you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you're missing. Right, um, and you know I think it points to you know, augmenting what we have now with uh, AI techniques, for example, like um, there's uh, Greg Zaharchuk at Stanford is, you know, he's done this for one-tenth dose uh, studies to show that you can synthesize an image that looks like full dose. Well, then if you give a full dose, do you see more METs or do you, you know, for example, or is it easier for an automatic algorithm to count out the METs for you to be your second set of eyes? Yeah. Um, so I think that that's a real important point. And we, you know, if we had an agent that was higher relaxivity yet, I'd be asking to use it, assuming it has a good safety profile. I mean, I was going to ask you, what would be, what would be your wish list to sit in Santa's lap and ask him for, a, with regard to gadolinium-based contrast, so that part that comes out of his, his workshop there, having well, to do with gadolinium-based <laughs> contrast? Well, I already look a lot like Santa, so I don't want to sit in his lap. <laughs> well, actually... <laughs> I got I to gotta tell you, my wife had this, oh, now she answers, she had this thing downstairs, says the four stages of life. The first stage, you, you, you believe in Santa Claus. The second stage is you don't believe in Santa Claus. The third stage is you are Santa Claus. And the fourth stage is you look like Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the fourth stage then. Um, but, no, um, I think, you know, a wish list would be uh, – a very high relaxivity agent, higher than what we have now, so that we could, you know, see more stuff that wouldn't be complicated by new artifacts. For example, the best example I can think of is you have to compete the T1 versus T2 star effects when you inject, uh, you know, uh, contrast for dynamic MRA. Sure. But yeah. But for most of the stuff we give gadolinium for, we're looking for enhancing lesions, and they have high relaxivity. Ideally, very stable, kind of like the macrocyclics that we see uh, stable, not only in terms of the test tube data, but also uh, typically showing uh, less uh, gadolinium retention or deposition uh, than most of the linears. Now, multi-hands, high relaxivity, it's, it behaves some, somewhere in between those categories. It, it, it is retained, though, to some extent. And I want to go on the record just to point out, I don't think that's important. Nobody's ever shown that it causes symptoms. But hey, if you had a macrocyclic high relaxivity agent that didn't deposit as much, boy, that would be a, that would be a, a dynamite combination. Be a, be a bonus. Yep. <laughs> you know, and then maybe, maybe then, you know, again, with higher, even higher relaxivity, then there's there's actually more room for dosing flexibility without worrying about not giving enough. That's right. You, and yeah. I, I have to point out that gadobutrol or gadavist 
is a high relaxivity macrocyclic, but in the empiric uh, clinical trials, it acts like a standard relaxivity agent in terms of lesion detection in the brain. So if we had something like I've seen research reports, uh, there was something in radiology recently on uh, an agent that's uh, still in the the development phase, but it's called uh, gadopiclinol. Uh, it has a R1 relaxivity of around 12, and it's maintained oh. at 1.5 and 3 Tesla. And they were showing, you know, very promising looking data in rat tumors, uh, brain tumors. Um, so something like that, if it turned out to be as promising as it sounds like, it'd be great. But we've been led down this road before and had a lot of excitement on things that turned out when you had bigger clinical trials maybe it didn't work out. But I, th I think they've actually uh, announced but not published that they've got positive clinical trials for that agent as well. So, you know, if that comes along, we'll look at it strong. Um, we want more relaxivity and better or same safety if possible. Well, Santa, yeah, I'm, I'm Santa always... that would be a great <laughs> Christmas gift, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, it would. You know, I've always looked at, at relaxivity of a gadolinium agent as equivalent to the field strength of a magnet. What do you want for a field strength? I want more. Well, what do you want for relaxivity from an agent? Since relaxivity is the effectiveness of the agent, I want more, yeah. uh, which would give you better effectiveness. And and in fact, Howard, I think you I'm really end with this. This is interesting. There was a, a publication that asked about uh, patients... Um, wish list for, you know, what would they be willing to risk or whatever for a contrast agent? Can you, can you explain it a little better? You were telling me about it and I yeah. you did a much better job. It was a paper by uh, Woolen, like a Woolen jumper, mm -hmm. <laughs> although uh, probably not the same. It was a, a survey yeah. of women uh, getting uh, MRIs for breast cancer and they asked them, can you please rank order what's important to you about gadolinium? And it's it's sad that it's taken us 35 years to ask people what they <laughs> yeah, think what they, is important yeah. in terms of us injecting stuff into them. And the number one uh, was lesion detection or diagnosis. So that goes along with high relaxivity. Number two was they wanted to make sure it was safe and they didn't have adverse reactions. Number three, this was on a pick list. Uh, number three was uh, the the extent to which the gadolinium was retained in their body. And number four was cost, but there was a an asterisk by cost, uh, and that was if patients were of a low socioeconomic group and had to uh, potentially pay out of pocket, cost went right to the top of the list <laughs> above yeah. everything yeah. else, uh, I guess, for practical reasons. And yeah. that might be different in the U.S. versus Europe and civilized places where they actually pay for the gadolinium. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I think we have to keep in mind that patients want the right diagnosis in a safe way. And so um, those those should be driving our uh, decisions and purchasing and prescribing decisions. I think uh, at least it should be kept foremost in our minds. Well, that's I think it's great. Kristen, you got any closing thoughts before we, uh, before we take this? take this to production? You know, I think, um, no, the Santa part, then the Christmas gift, and then you saying what you wanted <laughs> just reminded me of you sitting on Howard's lap. So um, <laughs> you wanted higher relaxivity. So the whole uh, yeah. mental image I have right now, it's, it's closing. It's yes. Um, so that, that's what, that's what I pulled together out of this podcast. <laughs> 
When we get off the air, I'll tell you a joke. <laughs> it has to do with Santa. It wouldn't necessarily be appropriate for everyone. Okay. Well, we'll just let it go with that. Uh, again, I want to thank uh, Bronco for their unrestricted educational grant making this possible. Thank you, Howard, and thank you, Kristen, for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for Carl. keeping us in line. Oh uh, no, no, it's 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 my it's my honor. So, thank you all for listening. Uh, everybody out there, have a great rest of your day, unless you've got other plans. And we're just out of here, so you're just going to have to get over it. See you next time. Goodbye now. You've been listening to MRI Cast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics. Thank you.